This Week at Hope Point. In fact, if there's any one reason that I believe the Bible's inspired by God, it's probably Psalm 22, because nobody could write so vividly about the crucifixion with such confidence 1,000 years before crucifixion was invented. As a matter of fact, I love the way that it ends. He has done it. Sort of reminds me of what Jesus said in John 19.30. It is finished. He has done it. It is finished. So my good news for you today, good news for me, is that whatever you bring to Jesus, whatever sin, lifetime of sins, whatever you bring, when his suffering was over, he suffered enough for anything you would bring to him to be clean, forgiven, stain removed, righteousness granted, heaven promised, it's finished. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen to what Richard has to say to us from God's Holy Word. I told you last week that it was really enjoyable for me to do that little post on Facebook a a few weeks ago of asking people what was the most important decision they can remember in their life or one of that sort of affected the rest of their life. And a lot of people wrote, and I gave you some of those. I saved one of them for today. It comes from a Hope Point member And she said, uh, I was a pre-med student in college. I allowed one professor's opinion to persuade me not to sit for the MCAT, to not go to medical school. And and she said, I don't regret my decision now because how it turned out, but I do regret that one person's critical opinion would have changed me. But I was a very lost, impressionable girl who was very much searching for her place and purpose in life. And she says, fast forward, I moved to Spartanburg, not in medical school. Because of that, I met some friends, and they invited me to see the passion of the Christ. Obviously, the whole thing focuses on the final week of Jesus' life and his death. I would encourage all of you to see it, not with young children, but to see it. The movie rocked me to the core. I could not believe Jesus would endure such torture to save an insignificant, useless, worthless wretch like me. It challenged me to take a hard look at what I believed about Jesus, what I believed about me, why he would die for me. He pursued my heart full tilt relentlessly and my life has forever changed. I've never known love like his. Nothing has been more powerful than when I gave surrendered my heart and soul and life to Jesus Christ. Well, at the end of the service today, we're going to celebrate communion, the the Lord's Supper. Maybe you call it that. The purpose of that is to refocus our heart on Christ because it's so easy to drift from him and to see other things as big and important when they're they're not. And so when Jesus met with his disciples, he gave them bread on the last night of And he told them, this bread is my body. It's a symbol of my body given for you. I'm going to sacrifice my body for you because I love you. Then he gave them a cup of wine and said, Luke 22, 20, this cup is the new covenant. This is a symbol of my blood. I love you enough to bleed for you. And so what we want to do in the Lord's Supper is to remember again that sacrifice Because remembering that sacrifice is the only thing that's going to compel us to a life of sacrifice. This is what Paul said in Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, 
Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing God, this is your true and proper worship. Now, whenever you're reading the Bible, basically you're going to either be reading stories or statements. And when you read statements, what you want to do is find one of those statements that's actually a command. We would call that the what of all the statements. Like, what do you want me to do? And it's normally in the way of a command and all the other little words and phrases around it help you understand the what. But here the what, the command is offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's the purpose statement that Paul is making. That's the purpose of life to sacrifice, live as a sacrifice. And he'll explain that more. But first, let's just ask what a sacrifice is. So a sacrifice is... Maybe the best example, the sweetest example would be a mom staying up all night with a sick child because she values her child's comfort more than her schedule. So that'll help you. Oh, that's sacrifice. I value this more than me. That, that's a sacrifice. And so then Paul begins to tell us what a spiritual sacrifice looks like. It's, <clears throat> it's one that is... It's holy and pleasing to God. Oops, my bad. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So when you look at this verse, say, okay, I want to live as a living sacrifice. It's not just making any sacrifice. That's what the world does. But I'm thinking the sacrifice that I'm making, I'm making it because it pleases God and it occurs through a body that is pure. I'm allowing God to live out his holiness, his purity in me. And I do that because I want to please him because I owe him everything. So that's the that's, living sacrifice has to do with my, my, my body being holy regarding God as more important than me. Regarding God's design and his desires as more important than my design and desires. So I'm making a sacrifice not living for my body's desires, God's desires. And he says, this is worship. So what we just did, singing, good singing, that's part of worship. But incomplete if it doesn't affect the decisions and behaviors of your body. Paul says here, true worship is when your body makes sacrifices for God. You know, Paul's going to tell us why we should live that way because when, if you were to ask the world, like this is crazy talk to the world. You mean the purpose of life is living for someone that regarding someone is more important than me, pursuing holiness in an unholy world? This is crazy talk. So why should I do that? Well, Paul answers that. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. So he says, the reason you live like this is because of mercy. Do you remember God's mercy? Do you remember when you were a kid and your parents told you to do something and for some reason you thought it was a good idea to ask, why? Yeah, they probably said something like, because I said so. Well, God could say that, but he doesn't. He answers your why. Why should I use my body 
sacrificing my bodily desires, my schedule for God's. Why should you do that? And his answer is, because of all the mercy that I showed you. That's the why. So now we need to answer the question, what is mercy? Because everything hinges on this. Like, oh, wow, I just found a key word here. Everything hinges on, on mercy. I think we could all define it, probably get pretty close if we just got together and said this, but I, I, I'll save you that trouble and we'll just start off with something that everybody can agree with. Mercy is providing relief for someone's pain because that person is unable to relieve their own pain. Mercy, in any definition, always has to do with the relief of pain. And it's always given by somebody who is greater than the one being helped because they have the ability to help the helpless, but they don't have an obligation. It's not like they're related to them. It's not like they owe them anything. They extend mercy to them, not because they have to, because they want to. That's the concept of mercy. So now you probably would be asking the question, if you're a good Bible student, so when did God relieve my pain? Like, when did that happen to me? When did he show me mercy? And Paul lets you know that he's going to answer that with that word, therefore, which, and, which begins that sentence. He, this is his way of telling you, I'm calling you to live your life, sacrificing your desires for God's agenda. Live, use your body, holy and pleasing to the Lord, because of the mercy you've received. And then the therefore is to tell you, I just wrote 11 chapters describing when you got that mercy. That's what he said. Telling you, live a life dedicated to God because of the mercy that you just received. And he said it in 11 chapters. We don't have time for 11 chapters. I'll give you a synopsis of Romans 1 through 11, how it relates to mercy. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That probably covers just about everybody in this room with the word all. So that's why we're in pain. Every one of us looked at God's glory and said, no, thank you. I'll live for something else. Not his glory, not his agenda, mine. All of us have done it. So that produced a terrible situation. Romans 6, 23, the wages or the penalty for such a lifetime of choices is death, spiritual death, separation from God. So that's the pain we were in. We were stained by our sin. We were rebellious. It resulted in us being on death row. And right at that time, when God saw us on death row, here's where the mercy kicks in. Romans 5, 6, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the key to understanding mercy at all, and especially this verse, is, is the word powerless, because that was, that was at the heart of our definition of mercy. Remember, somebody who had no power to help themselves was helped by someone who had power. So you'll, you'll never grasp 
God's mercy until you understand he gives it gladly, joyfully to those who are powerless. Like you're sitting in this room today and some of you are saying, I am beyond God's help. I did it for the 10,000th time. I have nothing to bring him. I've got no way to get myself out of this. I'm stained, I'm guilty. I deserve spiritual death. Those are the people he came for. The powerless, that's who get mercy, are those who have no way to help themselves. It's almost like a a man who's charged with murder. He goes into the courtroom, and the only thing he can do is plead guilty because the place where he committed the crime had 10 cameras, and they Watched, they saw it. So your whole life has been seen by God, so you can do nothing in the courtroom except plead guilty. He saw it. Thoughts, actions, words, he saw it. And so you're powerless to say anything other than I'm guilty. And to those who say guilty and claim they have no power to change their situation, God gives them mercy. It's amazing. I love how Tim Keller said it. This is the gospel. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's that's mercy. To the powerless, he gives Christ to go into death row and to die in our place. So now you understand why Paul links these in Romans 12:1. Because of God's mercy, that's why we sacrifice our lives. In other words, we make sacrifices for God because of his sacrifice. Like what's your motivation for living a life where you have to deny your body, deny your agenda? Your schedule in order to please God, do his will. What's your motivation for making a sacrifice for God? His sacrifice for you. That's the basis of Romans 12, 1. So let me, let me just say it like this. Every sacrifice we make is motivated by Christ's sacrifice and should point to Christ's sacrifice. Every sacrifice is motivated by Christ and should point to Christ. This is how we win the world to Christ when our sacrifices magnify, as the band said, magnify his sacrifice. Give you an example of that. Nicholas von Zinzendorf was born in 1700, graduated college in 1719, traveled around Europe after college, touring Germany, Holland, France, and Switzerland, And one day in Dusseldorf, Germany, went into a museum, and just like we saw last week, from the museum, he stopped, he stared, and he stayed at a painting of Jesus Christ on the cross, thorns pressing into our Savior's head, blood streaming down his face, and below the painting were these words, all this I have done for you, what will you do for me? So when Zinzendorf, for the first time in his life, really valued the sacrifice of Christ, he began to say, okay, what sacrifices should I 
make for Christ. So in 1722, he purchased his grandmother's estate. And in June of that year, religious refugees from various countries in Europe started pouring into that little place called Hernhut. So now he's, he's made this sacrifice to give a home for religious refugees. And on uh, August 13th, 1727, at a communion service that we're about to do, revival broke out at Hernhut. May that happen today. And that spirit of God that fell upon those scattered, gathered religious refugees was so great, they began a prayer meeting that history says lasted basically 100 years. And over the next 65 years, that little community of suffering Christians sent out 300 missionaries around the world, influencing other missionary movements like that of William Carey and John Wesley, all from Zinzendorf's sacrifice to open his home to religious refugees. Five years after the Spirit of God fell on the Hernhut community, um, two of those missionaries, their names David Nitschman and Johann Dober, they left Hernhut, boarded a ship. I've told you this before, but maybe it'll make more sense now in this context. They felt burden for African slaves that had been kidnapped and sold, and now we're on uh, the island of St. Thomas, and they were working in the cane fields, and they obviously did not, had no access to the gospel. These two missionaries went to St. Thomas to share the gospel with these slaves. And before they left Hernhut, as they boarded the ship, as they left their community of believers, they yelled this from the ship. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. So now they're making a sacrifice motivated by the sacrifice of Christ. And what they want to do is to go to St. Thomas and point to the sacrifice of Christ that those African men and women would be saved into the gospel. So what is the reward of Christ's suffering? Well, I guess two things. That his gospel through our sacrifices would be preached around the world and he would have all of us. He didn't die on a cross, he didn't die on a cross for 95% of your heart. The reward that he wants is all of you because he gave all of himself for you. So that's how we win the world to Christ. Our sacrifices point to his sacrifice. So obviously the most important thing in the world we can ever do is grow in appreciation of Christ's sacrifice because as we do, then we will be motivated to do what? Make more and larger sacrifices. There's a hymn, old hymn, uh, that sort of voices this in a, in a prayer. Give me a sight, O Savior, of thy wondrous love to me, of the love that brought thee down to earth to die on Calvary. Oh, make me understand it. Help me take it in. What it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. 
Was it the nails, O Savior, that bound thee to the tree? Nay, t'was thine everlasting love, thy love for me, for me. So, so that's what we want to grow in understanding of his love for us because that is so easily just we, bad day, bad season of days and we forget that he loves. So we want to meditate for the remainder of the service on the love of Christ and his sacrifice because that's the only thing that will grab hold of our minds, souls, and bodies to live as holy sacrifices to God. So where are we going to go to see Jesus? Sacrifice. Well, we could watch the Passion of the Christ. But some of you might say, no, I don't need Hollywood to show me Jesus. I'll just read the Bible. Then where could you go to find that? Well, believe it or not, there's, you might say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because they were eyewitnesses to the, uh, Jesus' suffering. There's really a better place. They're really not as specific about his suffering as you would think. And I think maybe it occurred because um, maybe in that day, people knew about the description of the cross. So they just didn't rehearse it. So the best place to really learn about the cross is where we were last week for a second, Psalm 22. So in order for us to appreciate Jesus' sacrifice, I just want us to spend the remainder of our time in Psalm 22. And it begins, as you know, with the prayer of Christ from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I know I, we looked at this last week. If you're saying, Rich, do you remember that you did that? Last? I remember. <laughs> I remember. But now we're going to look at the verses that follow because what I love about Psalm 22, it's the most unique psalm in the world because it talks about two suffering men at the same time. One of them is a guy named David. One of them is Jesus. And it's just interwoven. Sometimes it's his suffering, sometimes it's Christ, but eventually it all points to the suffering of Christ. But if you're suffering today, I think you'll find help in Psalm 22. That's what Jesus said on the cross. David writes more than that. This is what David said about his suffering. Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. God, I cry out day and night, but you do not answer me. I find no rest. So he's telling God, you feel distant to me. I am begging you for help. It feels like you're not interested. Wow. Can we not relate to that? Love his honesty. You know, you read the words of, 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 of this from David, and of course they apply to Jesus too, since he, he, he referenced that. And you say, well, this looks like this guy has lost, completely lost his faith. Nope. He's just disoriented. It's what pain does to you. It's, just, it's like getting hit in the face by Mike Tyson. Like you're still standing, but like what, what is that? You just start swinging everywhere. So he's been he's hit by pain, hadn't lost his faith, but... He, he doesn't feel, here's why we know he hadn't lost his faith. He's grasping for truth, so he finds it. And he starts quoting that too. Verse three, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. 
In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you. You delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. So he's like encouraged. Like, man, these people were just like me. Powerless and you helped them. So I know you are into powerless people. Ah, So he's refreshed. But then as real pain and real deep pain does... It's just cyclical. Sometimes you believe, sometimes you doubt. Now he's back to doubting because he says, you helped them, but you're not helping me. He says that. But I'm a worm. I don't feel like a man. I feel like a worm. Scorned by everyone and despised by the people. So he's utterly lonely. And then he expresses that loneliness to a degree that is quite intense. He feels even more wormish because of the vocal cries of abuse from people around him. Psalm 22, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Well, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. So everybody's just sort of having this gossip feast of, hey, man, here's the big believer. And if he's God's really his God, he'll come. And, and David said, everybody's saying that about me. So you might look at David and say, ah, I think you're paranoid, David. People aren't really saying that. You just, you just got it in your head. Well, say that all you want about David. But this is almost verbatim what was happening around Jesus Christ When he was dying on the cross, that scene is a prophecy of what would happen when Jesus died. So it's no paranoia. Matthew 27, fast forward to the Gospels. Those who passed by hurled insults at Jesus, shaking their heads. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. This has always been the most painful part of the cross to me. The happy hatred of those who were onlookers. Their tongues were delirious with joy, almost as if they were at a Clemson tailgate. They were making sport of a naked, crucified, bleeding man mocking him. So I want you, when we're talking about sacrifice, I want you to appreciate the sacrifice of Jesus for you. When we say he died for you, this is what we're talking about. He's he's staying there while they're mocking him. And you keep reading, and David cycles out of this again. I tell you, this is what deep pain does to you. Now he's trying to say, gosh, mm, I gotta, I can't be, I can't just focus on this. What is true? What is true? So he starts reciting what is true. Psalm 22. Now we're back to Psalm 22. Verse 9. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you. Even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. So you know what he's saying here? Like... 
I was supposed to be born. I, I have purpose. You, in my most vulnerable time of life, you made sure that I stayed alive because you gave me a mother who nursed me. Because I can't figure it out. Nothing seems right now. But I'm supposed to be here because in my most vulnerable time, you helped me. So he's, he's talking sane again. But he's in pain, so we need to expect a little backsliding. Here it comes. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths against me. So he's got all these enemies around him, and he says at the end of verse 11, no one is helping me, including you, God. My mother helped me. She would have done anything for me, God. She's gone, and now there's no one. He's in pain. He's in a lot of pain. And then, it's crazy. David, writing this psalm about his own pain, all of a sudden transitions. And from this point on, it's about Jesus. And he has no idea what he's writing. For those of you who are writers, for me, I always talk about sermons have a life of their own. I just start writing and say, we'll find out where this is going. David starts writing. He just starts talking. And he starts talking about things he could not possibly know except through the Holy Spirit. Psalm 22, 14 through 18. This is a description of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that you'll find nowhere else in the Bible. All of my bones are out of joint. My mouth is dried. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my, my garment. So this is what happens to somebody being crucified. This is a, a victim of crucifixion. First thing that happens when they nail you to the cross and drop that cross, a dislocation of your shoulder joints. It prevents you from breathing well, so you're just gasping, cause your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth. You know you're going to die at this point. Every, every victim of crucifixion died. You know you're going to die. You're hanging on the cross because they put spikes through your wrist and your ankles. And then all of your bones are on display because before they crucified you, they beat you to a pulp so with such fury that the skin pulled away and your bones are now exposed. Trying to help you appreciate the cross. And then the final act of humiliation divided my clothes among them, which we read about in Matthew 27. After they had nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. It's amazing. These Roman centurions had become so numb to death and 
execution, that six or eight feet above them was a naked, dying, screaming man, and they are gambling for his clothes. And one of those soldiers is going to go home that day and say, honey, look what I got from work today. And his wife will love it. That's the sacrifice Jesus made for you. Now let's just finish reading Psalm 22 because David again is now writing out of his mind. He has no idea what he's writing about. We do. It's about Jesus. Psalm twenty-two, nineteen. 19, but you Lord do not be far from me. You're my strength. Come quickly to help me. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. For dominion belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. That's not David. Because David knew he's on the way to the grave. That is written by a man who knows I'm on my way out of death, out of the grave. Every time Jesus Christ predicted his crucifixion in the Gospels, he linked it with a promise of his resurrection. David is writing about a man who's going to live forever and going to influence the whole world. He certainly does not think it's himself. No, this suffering man is Jesus. In fact, if there's any one reason that I believe the Bible's inspired by God, it's probably Psalm 22 because nobody could write so vividly about the crucifixion with such confidence 1,000 years before crucifixion was invented. As a matter of fact, I love the way that it ends. He has done it. Sort of reminds me of what Jesus said in John 19.30. It is finished. He has done it. It is finished. So my good news for you today, good news for me, is that whatever you bring to Jesus, whatever sin, lifetime of sins, whatever you bring, when his suffering was over, he suffered enough for anything you would bring to him to be clean, forgiven, stain removed, righteousness granted, heaven promised, it's finished. Just accept it. Receive it. Love him. Believe him. And so through the Lord's Supper, this is what we want to do. We just want to focus on him because we understand that the only way that we'll continue to make a life of sacrifice is if we're always looking at his sacrifice. Zinzendorf, the guy who brought in all the Moravians, said that when they prayed and talked about the things of the Lord, they made it as their goal to not let 15 minutes go by in their community without talking about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. So that's that's how you you live a life where you give your body, your mind, your soul to God. You just look at Christ and His mercy, God's mercy given to you because of his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.